This morning, we want to continue our series, Timeless Old Testament Stories of Flaws and Faith. And today, I want to look at the rather unusual story of Jonah. So, if you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Jonah, which is back in the Old Testament Minor Prophets, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. And I want to begin reading the story at Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and rather than traveling east to Nineveh, he traveled west and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So when Jonah is given his mission, mission 1.0 here, go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the deadly enemies of the nation of Israel, Jonah ignored, and instead he decides to run away in the opposite direction. And if you remember a Sunday school lesson, you probably remember this one. It didn't turn out very well. And via storm and a great fish, Jonah is returned to where he started. To put it mildly, Jonah is a very reluctant prophet. To put it more bluntly, he's a disobedient prophet. Rather than a faithful preacher of God's Word, he's a flawed preacher of God's Word. He's a walking contradiction. Jonah is so connected with the story of the whale, it's kind of like the elephant in the room, or more correctly, the great fish, that sometimes the rest of the story gets missed. But the bigger story of Jonah, it's not about a whale, it's about the patience and compassion of God. Patience for the worst of sinners, the violent people of Nineveh, and patience and compassion for the best of sinners, the prodigal, reluctant prophet Jonah. Tim Keller, in his book on Jonah, subtitles the book, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. Mercy to undeserving Ninevites, mercy to a flawed prophet. So even if our society specializes and has a habit of canceling those it defines as flawed, God is not ready to give up on Jonah. Flaws do not have to be fatal. Did you get that? Flaws do not have to be fatal. There may be a second chance, even a third chance, or a fourth chance. Let's continue reading the story. Jonah chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Here's the second chance. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. Second time around, Jonah gets it. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Nineveh shall be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this timeless story from your word. This morning, we may not only hear a story, but hear a story for us. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My rock and my redeemer, through Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a little younger, there was a TV series called Mission Impossible, and it would begin with this phrase, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and then would follow a command that would make even the bravest person shake in their boots. Now, in Jonah's case, I don't think he was actually given a choice to accept or reject his mission. But even without a choice, he rejected it. However, as we learn from the story, it didn't go so well. And here he is back where he started, back at the beginning. And the command comes a second time to Jonah in Jonah 3, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, over a thousand miles through rugged territory from Jerusalem or someplace in Israel to way up in the northeast in the city of Nineveh, the key city of the Assyrian Empire. Mission 1.0 had ended in disaster. We could call this Jonah's mission 2.0. So why was Jonah so resistant to take the message of the Lord to Nineveh? Was it because of the long journey, weeks of traveling through hostile territory? That probably wasn't the issue. Was it due to fear? I doubt that as well. He seems like a pretty brave man. But it's a reasonable concern. The Assyrians were known for their brutality. When they captured people, to make an example of them, they skinned them alive. They were unlikely to act kindly to some foreign preacher calling on them to change their ways. Someone has compared Jonah's situation to that of a Jewish rabbi who decided to climb the steps of the Reichstag in 1939 and call on Hitler and the Nazi party to repent. That probably wouldn't have ended very well for the Jewish rabbi. So though fear may have been involved, it seems to me there's a much bigger issue in Jonah's behavior. I might call it Jonah's dilemma. Jonah had two variant convictions tugging at his heart. First of all was the conviction that he was a patriot. He was proud of his country, Israel, just like I am proud of Canada, national pride. He was a citizen of Israel, and more than that, he actually was an advisor to the king, an encourager to the king. We only come across the name of Jonah one other occasion in the Old Testament. We come across him in the New Testament a number of times. So if you turn to 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, we find this verse. 2 Kings 14, 25 says, 
He, that is King Jeroboam, I think we have that on the screen, do we? He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath, Hepper. So Jonah has this prophecy that Israel is going to expand. He loved his country, even though it actually had a bad king at this point in time. Jeroboam II was not a great king. And more than that, he believed that his country was special in God's eyes. It was a chosen people, chosen particularly by God. It was a holy nation. And in Jonah's view, to be an enemy of Israel was to be an enemy of his. More than that, in his view, to be an enemy of Israel was therefore to be an enemy of God. Do you see Jonah's dilemma? Assyria, Nineveh, the superpower of the ancient world is the enemy of Israel. It's intent in Israel's destruction. A little bit like how Iran today is intent in Israel's destruction. It's a brutal enemy. Nineveh defeated and destroyed nations. They tortured and displaced people. They created the word refugee. Assyria has on at least two prior occasions threatened to wipe Israel off the map. And eventually, in 720 B.C., that's exactly what they would do. They would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And with a passion, Jonah hated these people. They were his enemies. He disdained the Assyrians. This was Jonah the patriot. But there's a second conviction, not only the patriot. Jonah was the Lord's preacher, the prophet, he was committed to proclaiming the word of the Lord faithfully, fully, and honestly to all who would listen. Two convictions that were now in conflict, the patriot of Israel, proud of his nation, and the prophet of the Lord with a message that he doesn't quite agree with. Perhaps this deep tension helps us better understand Jonah's responses. It's why he fled to Tarshish rather than going east to Nineveh. And it's why if we continue to read the story in Jonah chapter 4, he's actually angry when the people of Nineveh listen and respond. I have a hard time imagining that. I, I think it's great when you people stay awake. You know, never ride. He's angry when they respond. With good reason, he believed that the saving of Nineveh could mean the destruction of Israel. This was Jonah's dilemma. Now, in my work, I sometimes uh, use algorithms, and I, I think those of you involved in, in tech industries use much more complex algorithms. But when someone comes in to see me and they've had a, a traumatic injury to their neck, I follow a little algorithm to make a decision should I send them for cervical x-rays, neck x-rays. You know, are there any high-risk factors? Is the patient over 65 or the osteoporotic? Was there a dangerous mechanism to the injury? Like the old order gentleman who was a motor vehicle accident, sort of, he rolled his buggy into the ditch and landed on his head. And yes, indeed, when I did the x-rays, he had fractured his neck. Or the answer is no, there was no dangerous injury, so we probably don't need to do an x-ray. But there's another factor. If the patient can't rotate their head more than 45 degrees, that's a sign there could be problems. We probably should do the x-ray, right? So you get the idea, a little simple. I wonder if Jonah was following an algorithm, a simple one, 
The word comes from the Lord and says, go and tell Nineveh to repent. What's the choices? Path number one, obey and go. All right. What's the choices of Ninevites? They'll say, no, we're not listening to that message. Nineveh rejects the message, and they're destroyed. Jonah says, good on them. But there's another choice. What if the people of Nineveh actually respond and say, yes, we will obey. Nineveh will listen, and they're saved. Okay, there's pathway number two. Jonah just disobeys, runs the opposite direction, and then for sure... Nineveh is destroyed because there's no one to give them the message. And Jonah thought about this, and his mission would probably be unsuccessful if he goes to Nineveh. They probably won't listen. But there's this little itsy-bitsy possibility that they might, and they would be spared. It was too great a risk. So he heads down pathway number two. That was the best plan for Nineveh's destruction. So he buys his ticket to Tarshish. If God intended to save Nineveh, Jonah wanted no part of it. But you know the rest of it. It didn't end well. And God in his mercy offers Jonah a second chance. So under duress, Jonah obeys. The flawed Jonah actually makes a good decision. His battling convictions of patriot and prophet had created a great tension. This was his dilemma. Let's continue the story in Jonah chapter 3 and verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. This is Jonah's message or more correctly, the message he had been given. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. It's very direct. It's right to the point. This guy obviously was not a politician. You ever listen to them? Look around the circle, and at the end you think, what did they say? Right? It was unmistakable. It was a message of warning, a message of imminent danger. The red lights were flashing. The sirens and the alarm bells were ringing. Did Jonah say more than this? Did he say more than 40 days and... Nineveh will be destroyed. I suspect he would. Preachers have a kind of a habit, as you know, of saying more than a few things. And prophets, I think, did that as well. He probably shone a light on their evil. He probably railed at their violence. He may have grown angry at their injustice. He maybe even celebrated their possible destruction. A hundred years or so later, the prophet Nahum would preach a message of judgment on Nineveh. And this time it would be final, for in 612 B.C., Nineveh is destroyed. If you turn over to Nahum, which is two books ahead, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, and you read Nahum chapter 3, you find the message that Nahum preached to Nineveh, and it is kind of nasty. Nahum 3 verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to its prey, the crack of the whip. The rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. Verse 7, and all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I find comforters for her? Verse 18, 
Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There's no easing your hurt. Your wounds are grievous. All who hear the news about you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? I don't know. Did Jonah say stuff like it? It sounded like Shakespeare. Did Jonah say things like that when he preached? I don't know. Nahum did. But this much we know for sure. Jonah said, 40 days and Nineveh is done. And from all we can tell, Jonah didn't want a positive response to his message. And that certainly is odd, isn't it? As I said, I I like it when you people even stay awake. It appears that he would have been quite content, actually overjoyed, if his message was ignored and no one responded to the warning. He'd have been quite content if they just sent him back to Joppa for his holidays, right? But that was not to be God's way. And this morning, we do well to remember that the message that we bring, the message I bring, is way bigger than the messenger. Do you know, there have been some really sad stories of the crash and burn of Christian leaders. And when I hear those stories, it only points it back to myself because I think the more we feel that we're above that, the more vulnerable we are. The more we feel our vulnerability, the safer we are. But the message is so much bigger than the messenger. Brothers and sisters, when you hear some terrible story come down the pipeline, and you will, about some other leader who has blown it, remember this. The message is much bigger than the messenger, and Jonah's message was much bigger than Jonah. The messengers are flawed and disappointing and sometimes downright embarrassing, but the message is still the same. The message doesn't change, and the message is still bigger than the messenger. We are still called to turn to God from our wrong ways. In the New Testament, we hear the same message loud and clear. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The message is clear. God's mercy is extended to all. But some will say, that's that's New Testament. How about in the Old Testament? We'll turn to Jeremiah 18, verse 7 and 8, the story of when Jeremiah goes to the potter's house where he's working the wheel with his mud, his clay. And there's this verse, says this, If at any time, says the Lord, I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up and break it down and destroy it, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. Even if Jonah's message was given with a hard heart, and it was, the message was much bigger than the messenger, and the call to repentance was still valid. This was Jonah's message. So how did the people of Nineveh respond? Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The response of the people is beyond incredible. They listened with open ears. They believed freely and en masse. 
They acknowledge their evil, they renounce their violence, and from the bottom up and the top down, they demonstrated the repentance. Fasting, sackcloth, ashes. Sackcloth was the apparel of slaves. Ashes was the sign of mourning and contrition. Look at verse 6, even the king is impacted. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. In a nutshell, the entire city changed. There actually isn't a story. You say, well, you know, this kind of stuff happens. Well, no, it doesn't. There isn't a story like this in the rest of the Bible. There is a story's revival of worship in the time of good king Hezekiah and Josiah, there's the stories of the renewal that occurred during the times of Ezra when the people came back from captivity and the people confessed, listened to the scriptures, confessed their sins, wept bitterly. But that was a story of renewal among God's people. The story of Nineveh is the story of revival and repentance of a foreign, idolatrous, pagan people. Scholars have asked the questions, why did the people of Nineveh respond so quickly to the message? It's been pointed out that this era in Assyria's history was one of instability and insecurity. Previous years, the Assyrian Empire had been strong and stable, but at this time, their leadership was shaky. That almost sounds familiar, doesn't it? They had been a number of different leaders. The situation was unstable. The poor people in Britain, they're experiencing that, aren't they? It's been pointed out that at that time, northern tribes were beginning to successfully attack the Assyrian frontier. For the first time, the Assyrian or the Ninevite army actually lost a battle, and the threat of invasion was very real. Scholars say around that time, 762 BC, there was a massive solar eclipse that is recorded in the annals of Assyrian history, which was seen as the people of a sign of danger ahead. At that time, there was also a major famine, and get this, there was even a pandemic. This was a time of uncertainty in Nineveh's life as a city. Perhaps this prepared the people's hearts. Perhaps this made them a little more open to Jonah's message. The signs may have prepared the way, but they didn't change anyone's hearts. What changed their hearts? Hearing and believing God's Word. It's still what changes people's hearts. There's a power in the timeless message of God's Word. The writer of Hebrews describes God's Word as sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts deep. It exposes my sin that I like to hide, and it points me to the Savior. Jonah's mission, Nineveh's repentance. There's one final part of the story, which is actually probably the most important part. Look at verse 10, Jonah 3, verse 10. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. Jonah's mis uh, mission, Jonah's message, but beyond it all is God's mercy, withholding the judgment that Nineveh so richly deserved. This was a people that had practiced injustice. Here was a nation which promoted torture, here is a city who are known for their violence and their evil so that others celebrate when they have a hard time. Yet God gives them mercy. Our God is the God of the second chance. He grants a second chance to a flawed prophet, and now He gives a second chance to a violent city. But I want you to notice that even though His mercy 
is undeserved. It is not unconditional. So what do I mean when I say God's mercy, His forgiveness is not unconditional? Well, look at Jonah 3 verse 10 again. When God saw what they did, well, what did they do? They acknowledged their wrong, their evil, their violence, which is all covered by a big three-letter Bible word called sin. They acknowledged their sin. They admitted they had gone wrong. No excuses, no explanations, just the plain facts. We are wrong. But they did more than just acknowledge it. They gave evidence by their action that they really meant it. Sackcloth and ashes and fasting. Some might say, oh, that was just a holy show. But no, I think they're serious. They're showing their sincerity. And more than just acknowledging their sin, verse 10 says, they turned from their evil ways. They changed direction. They acknowledged their wrongdoing, changed their behavior. This is true repentance. This is the response of a guilty heart, and God in His grace forgives. He gives them undeserved mercy. Jonah 3 verse 10, God relented of the disaster He said He would do to them, and He did not do it. I might add, God's principles of forgiveness have not changed. As Christians, we understand that the cross makes all the difference. And when we acknowledge our sin and our wrongdoing and without any excuses, we humbly turn around. We're granted forgiveness through Christ alone. There's a big Bible principle here. Without full repentance, there cannot be full forgiveness. Did you get that? Without full repentance, there cannot be full forgiveness. And by the same principle, having been forgiven, we must freely forgive. In closing, let me leave you with a few takeaways. Here's the first one. Number one, no one is beyond God's mercy. No individual, no community, no country. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that change can never come to our society. Remember the story of Nineveh. No one is beyond God's mercy. Here's the second takeaway. God cares for cities. Even big, sprawling, noisy, violent, criminal, gang-filled cities. As the city goes, so goes the country. They're the center of culture, the center of power. But God cares for cities, and so must we. Number three, God's Word is powerful. The preaching of Christ brought renewal and revival to our nation years ago, and it can still change lives today. As a church, we want to listen to and be formed by God's Word, which was before our culture and will be here after our culture has moved on. Number four, the principle of forgiveness is for all. When a guilty heart, when my guilty heart acknowledges his sin and turns to Christ, I experience God's forgiveness here and now. And that same principle applies in my life when someone has deeply hurt me and apologizes and asks for my forgiveness, I forgive. Let me close with this powerful, encouraging story of God's grace and forgiveness, which comes very close to home. It's taken from the Waterloo Regional Record from their editorial page of September 22nd, 2020. Could you find it in yourself to forgive someone whose careless actions had claimed the life of a person you loved? 
Far from being a theoretical puzzle, that question is all too painfully real for the family of Daniel Martin, a 46-year-old Elmira man, actually a Westmont Rose man, who was killed by a Cambridge trucker driving too fast and paying too little attention to the road. The loss to the Martin family is incalculable. He leaves behind a wife and seven children. And considering he'd be alive today if the milk truck driver had behaved more cautiously, it's easy to think that Martin's grieving family would feel anger towards that individual and demand the stiffest possible punishment, likely one that would include time behind bars. But that's not how the Martins reacted. In a moving victim impact statement read out in a Kitchener court before the driver was sentenced, the family wholeheartedly forgave him. Even more, they asked the court to spare the driver from jail a request the judge took into account before issuing his sentence. To Martin's family, this act of forgiveness may seem a natural expression of the Martins' deep faith. But in a world where bitter condemnations and cries for vengeance, brothers and sisters, the crap you read on social media. How have people become so bitter and angry and nasty? In a world where bitter condemnations and cries for vengeance too often drawn out the quieter, more reason calls for mercy, the wisdom of this old order family warrants greater attention from all of us because they performed a service to all of us. They said, we want the driver to know that the whole family does not hold anything against him. And if there was some negligence in his watching traffic, we forgive him. In wounds that were still open, these words provided a healing balm. At the end, the truck driver who pleaded guilty to the non-criminal charge of careless driving causing death was sentenced to one-year probation and a $2,000 fine. He can't drive for the first three months of that year and in the remaining time only for work or medical appointments. Should he have faced harsher consequence? Some think so. The driver was traveling slightly above the speed limit on Northfield Drive and most likely not paying full attention. The blame for the fatal collision lies with him. The consequences were a life cut short. Our courts exist to deliver justice, but that means nothing less than doing what is morally fair and right. And that's something that no law, no matter how scrupulously written, can perfectly bring about to the satisfaction of all. That takes human hearts. So where does forgiveness, the act of ceasing to feel anger or resentment as someone who has caused you harm, fit in? Well, in cases such as this one, forgiveness is a powerful force that clears a way to peace. In this case, the truck driver admitted his mistakes. He expressed sorrow for his actions. He begged the family for forgiveness. They granted it. While no one can predict the future, we believe the Martins family's generous act will allow both them and the driver to break free from a tragic past and make a new beginning in their lives. This strikes me as justice for all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the wonder of forgiveness. We thank you for second chances, second chances for evil Ninevites, second chances for flawed prophets, second chances for us. We're thankful that none of us are beyond your mercy. Precious, precious blood of Jesus shed on Calvary, shed for rebels, shed for sinners, shed for me. Receive our thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.